So you think about this a lot? I got sad about it on the train again this morning. It comes at totally like random moments, you know. That's David Kestenbaum, one of the producers of our program. And to understand what he's been sad about, I think it's not going to make any sense unless you know that he's a physicist. Like, he has a PhD in particle physics. He was on one of the teams that discovered the top quark at Fermilab back in the 90s before he became a journalist. So he thinks like a scientist. And he recently stumbled across a story he'd never heard before about Enrico Fermi, the physicist that Fermilab is actually named for. So the story goes that this is 1950. Fermi's visiting Los Alamos. Los Alamos, where they developed the atomic bomb. Yeah. And they're sitting around at lunch. It's Fermi and a handful of other physicists. And um, they start talking about extraterrestrials. One of the scientists who was there remembers that they talked about some New Yorker cartoon, which had flying saucers and cheerful aliens stealing our trash cans. They joked about it. And then kind of out of nowhere, Fermi says something like, so where are they? Meaning... The aliens. And did people know what he meant? Yeah, somehow everybody knew exactly what he meant. The idea was basically that, like, the galaxy is this huge place, right? Hundreds of billions of stars. It's been around for billions of years. If you believe that intelligent life is something that just arises given enough time, where is everybody? Like, there have been billions of years where civilizations could have developed and become way more advanced than we are and traveled from star to star, or sent signals or something. Where are they? If that's right, where are they? This question became known as the Fermi paradox, which goes like this. If it's so likely that intelligent life exists elsewhere, where is it? Why hasn't anybody shown up? And of course, the simple answer to that would be, well, nobody else exists. And I had never thought, like, it made me think, maybe we're alone. Like, I really thought that for the first time. Yeah, it made me really sad. Like, I'd never thought about it seriously before. I had always assumed that life was everywhere. But he's making a really serious point here. Like, he's raising a tough question. So for months now, when David's brushing his teeth or doing nothing in particular... It'll hit him again. Maybe we're alone in the universe. Like this morning on the train. The, the specific thought I was having was that this would mean that there's nobody out there who knows more than we do. Like about science, about there are no better songs, <laughs> there are no better books. Like this is it, you know? Yeah. Like what we know is it. Like what we are is it. Why is your response to this sadness? Why is your response not sadness? Like, that, of course that's sad. This whole thing reminds me of um, just a really, really old Woody Allen movie. It might be Annie Hall, where there's a scene of him as a kid, and he's saying to some adult, like, she's saying, why didn't you do your homework? Something like that. And he's like, well, because the universe is expanding. And then the adult is like, why is that any of your business? And, like, that that's my question for you. Like, why is it any of your business? Oh, I totally read that the other way. I was like, he's making a serious point. Why is no one listening to him? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the problem. Like, I'm in his shoes. 
and I'm not making a joke. I feel like, yeah, I feel like if you were able to really imagine it, it would make you sad. Oh, really? Yeah. When you look up at the stars, like, do you think about what they are and the distances and stuff and all that? No, not in a deep way. I mean, it's so easy not to feel anything, but, like, it's a crazy thing you're looking at. Just like how small we are and how big it is. David tried to explain the feeling that he was having to me in a bunch of different ways. And the explanation that made the most sense to me was when he told me that he'd been looking at videos with his five-year-old son, Augie, who's really into space. Videos of the Apollo moon missions with astronauts, you know, happily bouncing around on the lunar surface and driving in that moon buggy they had. And David found himself just looking at where they were, like really looking at the moon. Oh, look how dead it is. Like There's nothing there. The moon is just this dusty, awful rock. And what if it's like that everywhere? You know, liquid methane oceans and whatever rocks or but no life at all. Like, what if that's the rest of the galaxy? Space just seemed like some horrible, awful, dangerous place to me. I see that. That there's no hope. It's just death out there. It's a lot of pressure if we're the only thing going on. Like, it's a lonely thought. I first found out that David was thinking about all this at our staff story meeting a couple weeks ago. And... I'll be honest, when he told everybody that he was upset about the Fermi paradox, we all laughed at him. Like, okay, that's what's upsetting you? Which he gets, but, you know, doesn't help him. I can't find anyone to really talk it through with. Because none of us took it seriously. Yeah, like, I feel like when I say it, people are like, yeah, I don't know. Or I always thought that. Or, you know, the thing that bugs me about is, like, he's making a real scientific argument. Like, I wanted to talk through the science of it with somebody. It's not just a, what do you think? I bet you they're there. I bet you they're not there. Like, he's, like, making a, like, a physics point, you know? Today on our radio program, stories from the one civilization we know does exist. Stories of people who head out on missions here on our own planet to vanquish their own loneliness. We hear from a nine-year-old girl, a married couple, and, of course, David. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. Stay with us. Back one, I think we're alone now. So none of us would satisfyingly engage our co-worker David Kestenbaum about Fermi's paradox. He needed a physicist to talk to, to help him figure out what to think. So he went to talk to one of his old physics professors from when he got his PhD at Harvard. Her name is Melissa Franklin. Her specialty is particle physics. Here's what happened. I went to see Melissa because I figured for sure she would understand when I was a student, I'd go to her with physics problems, but also life problems. Arguably, this was both. So uh, there's this thing that's been bugging me. And every time I tell people about it, they just laugh. <laughs> okay, I'm laughing first. Do you know what the Fermi paradox is? Uh... I told her the story about Fermi at lunch and his question. Where is everybody? We talk about these things all the time, like, you know, casually or just like over beers or coffee, and it's all kind of a joke. But it felt really serious. I don't think, honestly, you say that we talk about these things all the time over beer, but I don't think people actually do. 
They think about extraterrestrials. We think about what messages. I've thought for hours about what messages they would send, what messages I would send, how to communicate with them. But it actually, until you walked in here today, I never thought maybe there weren't any. Honestly, I was feeling a little choked up when I got to the part about how I'd been thinking we might be alone. I thought she would be sympathetic, but she kind of rolled her eyes, just like everybody else. Look, I mean, there's so... Look, compared to seeing all the polar bears die, this is not sad. So here the point is there were polar bears, and now there aren't any, and there, there was never anybody, and we're sad. (laughs) There's still nobody there. I guess it, I get that it's a weird kind of sadness, but like it's a real thing I feel. I know you feel that, and I'm I I know I know I know you do feel that. But what do you feel about the polar bears? This was something I also felt very alone in my worrying about it. You oh. know? <laughs> yeah, like I would say to my wife, you know, I was thinking again today, like we might be alone in the universe, and she's like, I know, sweetie. I know, sweetie. That's really nice. Like, just think about it for real, like for real, not just as a like, hey, what are the odds we're alone or this or that? Like for real, like it's because it might be true. Yeah. Do you think it's really hard? Maybe you're just having like um, college thoughts when you're 45. But then we got down to it. The thing that I'd come for. Melissa started doing this thing that I'd forgotten physicists sometimes do when you ask a question. They ask you more questions. What exactly do you mean by being alone? Let's properly define the question here. You're talking about no intelligent life or no life at all? What if there's one crappy plant on another planet? How would you feel about that? What if advanced life like us is just a mathematical improbability? A total fluke? And then you would say, okay, if that's the case, I have to believe in God. That's what you're saying. How many physicists do you know who believe in God? Six. I don't think Fermi thought we were alone. And Melissa didn't think we were alone either. Come on, she said. There are lots of possible explanations for why we haven't found intelligent life. It doesn't have to be that we're alone. She ran through some of them with me. Okay, here we go. There are lists of them online that scientists and other people have come up with. I have to say, they were not encouraging. For example, maybe other life has arisen, but just not intelligent life. In other words, there are microbes, but nothing else, which would be a bummer. The next one's a bummer, too. It's the nature of intelligent life to destroy itself. That's really sad. If that was the reason, that would be really sad. Let me remind you that Fermi, when he asked this question, was at Los Alamos. They just built the first atomic bombs. They were about to build the first hydrogen bombs, which would be thousands of times more powerful. That leads us nicely to the next possibility. It is the nature of intelligent life to destroy others. That would also be sad. Another possible explanation was called the inflation hypothesis and the youngness argument. Neither of us could understand the physics of that one. Something to do with a synchronous gauge probability distribution. This one made sense, though. Everyone is listening. No one is transmitting. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it takes less energy to listen than to transmit. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Then there is the zoo hypothesis, basically that aliens have left us alone, undisturbed, as a kind of intergalactic nature preserve. Or this one, aliens are here right now. We just haven't figured it out. Melissa liked that one. I mean, they could maybe, you know, how would we know if, 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 if cockroaches were alien or not? 
I mean, they have DNA. They seem very much like part of our family tree. But maybe they make themselves seem like our family tree in order to live here. Because, like, how could they live here if they weren't? Be serious for a second. You always – I can't believe that you get to decide what's serious. You are so, so wrong. Like, you go, oh, oh, stop. Oh, don't be silly. Like, and you're the one bringing up the crazy things that you're going to cry because there's no (laughs) extraterrestrial intelligence. Jesus. Okay. Let's go talk to Paul. I need to talk to Paul. I want to ask him now, actually. Okay. Paul is Paul Harwitz. He's also a professor here. And conveniently, one of the pioneers behind the search for extraterrestrial life. He's been at it for decades. He did one of the early searches for extraterrestrial signals at the giant Arecibo Observatory. There's a photo of him and Carl Sagan and Steven Spielberg, you know, Close Encounters, E.T., throwing the on switch for another telescope search for signals from other worlds. I know Paul because he taught one of my classes way back. He's 74 years old now. Paul, we need your help. Paul David Kestenbaum. Hi, 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 hi. I hadn't reached out to Paul originally because, honestly, I was intimidated. I was upset about the Fermi paradox. I figured he'd think that was silly. But now, here we were. And it crossed my mind for the first time that we might, uh, that we might be alone. And it made me really sad. Like, that felt like a real thing. Yeah. Did you ever go through anything like that? No, because I don't think we're alone. You don't? No, I think, I think the Fermi paradox is a serious question. Yeah. I think there's probably some good answers. Um, the unbounded time is a problem. Maybe, he says, civilizations don't last long enough to figure out how to travel between stars. Maybe they last 10,000 years or 100,000 years. And maybe traveling through space is just too onerous. The vast distances. Which is sad in its own way. But maybe civilizations live long enough to communicate with each other, he says. In which case, we could hear from them. We haven't been listening that long. Just a few decades. And who knows? We may not be looking in the right way. Paul's been thinking about that problem. It's interesting because just as you walked in, I'm working on a new scheme to do the entire sky all the time looking for optical pulses. But you can't dismiss, you cannot dismiss the Fermi paradox. Yeah. The best you could do is kind of squirm, <laughs> wave your hands, and say, there are some ways for you not to be sad. Are there any physics things that make you sad like that? Well, what really bothers me is what happens after you're dead. Um, it, is it just like you switch off the light and there's never anything ever, ever again? That, that you experience? Can that really be? This is not a physics problem per se, though it is a problem. And you can think about it like a physicist. I suppose there's some, some precedent for it because before you were born, you know, there was nothing, right? But I have a hard time wrapping my mind around being dead. And, that, <laughs> and, and this probably becomes more of a problem when you get old because you realize that it's actually going to happen. That bothers me a lot more than the possibility that there's not other civilizations out there doing whatever they do. It just bothers you. Maybe you don't want to be dead, but you don't want to be alive forever. Well, actually, if you're dead, you probably don't know you're dead. But I just can't imagine the state of being dead. It's easy to understand. Something dies, it's dead. But if it's you, that's not so easy because then there's nothing. It just, and it, it just, bothers you you can't imagine that. Or it bothers you that you're I guess. Dead. 
I guess. I. Because you talk about this all the time. <laughs> well, because I, I'm an old. I could die any minute now, right? Okay. Right. I'm. I'm sort of at the average age that everybody around me is dying. At. Did I put the ad in twice? <laughs> <laughs> Melissa and I went back to her office. Honestly, I do think that's part of my sadness about the Fermi paradox. I'm older now. My parents are getting older. I have kids. Questions that used to just seem philosophical, they feel very different now. Much more real. Haven't you felt sad? Have you, you never felt... Yeah. You never felt physics sad like that about something? I'm kind of pissed off at the... I get kind of sad at the speed of light. Yeah. Like, why is it so small? <laughs> no, really, like, compared to... Like, I know. Most people think of the speed of light as pretty fast. But the galaxy's a big place. If we ever start text messaging with aliens, it's going to be a pretty big delay. You know, four oh. years to F- Alpha Centauri, right? Yeah. I mean, it just, just kind of sets a tone that's bad. It's just like a speed limit that you can't get over. Can, can we do something, though? What is, the, what is the Drake equation now? Melissa and I sat down and did what we probably should have done from the start. The Drake equation is physicists' best attempt to calculate how many other civilizations are out there. It's quantitative to the extent that you can be quantitative about this question. Basically what Fermi might have been doing on a napkin or whatever at lunch all those years ago. Here you are, read it to me. N equals R star times... F sub P. Can I erase some stuff? Yeah, yeah. You can erase anything. On the left side of the equation is N. That's the number you're trying to calculate. How many advanced civilizations are in the galaxy? To calculate N, there are a bunch of other numbers you have to put in and multiply together. You start with how often stars form in the galaxy, then what fraction of those stars have planets around them. We actually have data on this. Then you need the odds of life evolving, which happened pretty quickly here on Earth after it cooled the odds of intelligent life developing, and finally, how long you think civilizations last. The result? How many advanced civilizations might there be in the galaxy? 156 million. In the galaxy? Yeah, yeah, in the galaxy. That's crazy. It made me feel great that that might be true. But then Melissa kept reading. Oh, she says, there's a different answer you get. If you tweak the numbers a bit, based on how likely you think it is for life to evolve, etc., in that case, the number of intelligent civilizations goes way down. As an example of a low estimate, combining NASA's star formation rates, the rare Earth hypothesis, Mayer's view on intelligence, Drake's view of communication, and Shermer's estimate of lifetime, the number of civilizations could be as low as 9.1 times 10 to the minus 11. Oh, what? What's the number? 9 times 10 to the minus 11th. In other words... 0.0000, basically zero. Zero. I.e. suggesting that we are probably alone in this galaxy and possibly the observable universe. The physicist term for this is that the problem is poorly constrained. Meaning, basically, we have no idea. There could be 156 million alien civilizations out there, or zero. Or somewhere in between. So the whole thing is kind of a Rorschach test. I was worried about the possibility that N might be zero. Melissa? What I'm worried about is it's 156 million, in which case we're probably screwed very soon, like any day now. Boom! Like, aliens are going to come. 
156 million in our galaxy. I love that you're afraid of the other end. Yeah, I am afraid of the other end. I, I, you should be too. So I should, I should celebrate the silence, the great silence. Well, I think, you know, we're in a good place now. I hadn't thought about it that way until this very moment. But it's true. We haven't encountered some terrifying alien race. And we haven't somehow proven we're alone. We don't know. That's right. Yeah. We're in a sweet spot. We're not dead. And there's still hope. Right. Yeah. Okay, I feel good about that. Okay, okay good. I'm glad. I realize that is the least physics-y resolution you can come to. That we should feel good not knowing the answer to some big question. But I do feel better. I think I turned the corner when we talked to Paul. Because Paul agreed that Fermi had posed a serious problem. But he'd looked it in the face. And he came out on the other side. Still believing intelligent life is out there. And looking for it. He probably won't hear anything. But I think I'm okay with that. Maybe is better than no. David Kestenbaum. What is the sound? Yeah, so nature produces a lot of radio signals, um, and it's the vibrations of molecules and atoms that are in dust clouds uh, and in stars and in galaxies. Dan Wertheimer is the chief scientist at the SETI Research Center in Berkeley. SETI is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. He sent us this sound of data from one of the world's biggest radio telescopes, the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico, which points at stars listening for signals sent by other intelligent life. What we're listening for is a ee or ooh, we don't know what frequency, or maybe a bip, 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 bip. It might be buried. It might be a very weak kind of ee, but it'd be buried in this static the, that you hear when you point your telescope to, a, to the stars. We've only just begun looking for other life. And of all the radio frequencies we can search, we've looked at fewer than 1%. In 40 years, Dan says, we have found nothing promising yet. Coming up, searching for intelligent life in your own marriage. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's American Life, Myra Glass. Today's show, Fermi's Paradox. We have stories of people heading out on their own on very personal quests to figure out, are we alone? We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2. Two can be as sad as one. Well, in this show about loneliness, we now turn to one of the loneliest experiences a person can possibly have, and that's marriage. I think the thing that I was least prepared for in marriage is how lonely it can be. When things go badly, I mean. And there's this recording of this couple trying to get past all the stuff that's dividing them that I think illustrates really well how hard that can be and what it really means to do it. This recording is from this new podcast in which a real-life therapist records her real-life sessions with real couples who have agreed to be recorded. The therapist is Esther Perel, who's also the author of the books Mating in Captivity and the upcoming The State of Affairs. I've listened to a few episodes of her podcast now, and, okay, my mom was a marriage therapist. She wrote a book about her techniques and research. She did trainings for other therapists. I've been in couples counseling myself with my wife, so I know about this world. 
And I found listening to Perel to be completely fascinating. She's a very active therapist. I think it's the best way to say it. She talks a ton, takes what the couple says to her, and then kind of says it back to them in this way where it's like she's a LeBron-level basketball player passing the ball to them and then urging them down the court, running alongside and shouting encouragement and instructions and very occasional razzing along the way. She's such an intense listener that it makes interviewing her a very odd experience. I tried to explain this to her after she and I have been sitting in the studio together for over an hour. I rarely am interviewing somebody. Like, I'm not sure if I've ever interviewed with somebody who's watching me as much as I'm watching them. Yes, especially when your throat chokes. When my throat chokes? What does that mean? When you, when I spoke and you will get... What is, and what does that mean when I do that? When the little polyvagal nerve quivers, it yeah. means that I'm saying something that's reaching you. <laughs> She's talking about the vagus nerve, which runs down your neck and into your body. Apparently very revealing. The therapy session that I found so interesting, and all the sessions in her podcast, are a kind of session that Perel does a lot of. She does these consultations where instead of people coming in week after week like normal therapy, a couple will come in just one time for two or three hours, and then that's it. No more therapy. People fly in from all over for this. Perel only takes couples whose problems she thinks she can make a dent in in so little time. And and what can you accomplish in in a two- or three-hour session where you see the people once? So much. The story that the people come in with is not the story they leave with. That's the first goal. Yeah. The second thing is to see if they can actually experience with each other, even a glimpse of it, that which they may be longing for. Can they have a different kind of connection, a different kind of experience of themselves and with each other in the room? And and with most of the couples, can you get them to that point? That seems very advanced. Not necessarily. I mean, um, with many. It can make for suspenseful listening, hearing her try to get couples to that point. This particular couple came into her office on a Wednesday morning this fall and sat on the couch together. They'd been married for nearly 40 years, middle-class people. They met when the woman was just 15. They have children and grandchildren. And then, three years ago the wife discovered that her husband had been cheating on her. Not just like with one person for a few months or a few years, but widely and compulsively for most of their marriage. I mean, like for decades. These were one-night stands and paying for sex, he said. They both said they'd been happy together all those years in the marriage, with a good sex life. And she wanted to stay together if it was at all possible, because she wanted to keep what they'd had that was good. But, you know, being lied to for decades... It's like it robbed her of her past. She couldn't tell what was real, what to trust. She told Perel in the session. So, yeah, I mean, we had a good marriage, and we, that's why I'm still here. I mean, he, he was a good husband. He was the best father ever, always there with our children, always loving to me. And I don't doubt for one second that he didn't love me with all of his heart. I never knew anything was wrong. And I don't want to say I'm one of those women who lived in, you know, a tunnel without any uh, peripheral vision. I'd, you know, if I'd, something came up, I'd question him and he'd tell me the story and I'd believe him. Why not believe him? He's never done anything to cause me to mistrust him. Now I look at him and if he tells me this pen is red, I will turn it 15 different ways today. 
and that's that's a huge issue for us now. They spent a little bit of time in the session, not a lot really, on what might have led him into this double life. He grew up in a violent home, saw his mother regularly beaten by his dad, was beaten himself, and witnessed way more than he could absorb or handle as a kid. Perel tells him there are lots of boys who go through that and then grow up to split their personalities in half, like he'd done. Treat women one way when they're away from home, and then be super responsible with their families when they are home. He seems kind of wrecked in the recording. It's only now that he was finally facing the truth about what he'd done and who he'd been. I wasted uh, 59 years living a, a mask, living a dual life. Just, my kids didn't really know me. I was this other person. As much as I was involved with them, I, I wasn't present in my life. Can't get that back. I wasted my life. He insisted that he wasn't cheating because he was unhappy in his marriage. He said he was happy. He said he didn't love any of these women. And his wife was trying to believe him, that this was a compulsion that had nothing to do with her. And she was also struggling with the fact that her friends and relatives could not understand why she was staying with him after everything he'd done. They judged her, even her own daughter. And is she mad at you? Yeah, she was very mad at me. For not throwing him out? Uh, well, I did throw him out, but for not ending it, yeah. Yes, they thought right. I was weak. They thought I had um, Stockholm Syndrome. They felt I, you know, because I've been together, we've been together so long, they just felt that I was too weak in, in character. And they weren't, they didn't like what they saw. Pearl told me that it was seeing the wife's isolation that made her realize what it was that she wanted to accomplish in this session. She's decided to stay, and she needs a dignified way, a way with self-respect to feel that her choice is valid. But in order for it to be valid, she needs something from him that I sense she has yet to receive, that he is struggling to give her. And it's that button that I choose to focus on during the session. And what is the thing that she needs from him? She needs a degree of accountability and recognition about the pain that he caused her. But now he's so busy with his own pain that he has a hard time owning the hurt that he caused her. So he yeah. feels so bad about himself that he can't feel bad for her. So a lot of the session is Perel trying to get the husband to understand and acknowledge his wife's pain. And... Okay, I'm going to play a stretch of this now that's several minutes long from the therapy session, starting from when Perel first brings this up. And what you hear is this very human thing I think all of us in relationships have done. He's not able to take in what they're saying to him at first. And it slowly, slowly gets through. A warning, if you're listening to the internet version of our show, we have unbeeped the curse words in this version. You can get a beeped version at our website. How much... How much does he talk about what he did to you versus what happened to him? I would say he talks more about what happened to him Correct. than what happened to me. I'm sensing that. That is off balance. Okay. So listen to her very carefully. Because I think she may have tried to say this already more than once. I, I really feel that you talk more about you 
and the pain you're going through than the horrific pain you caused me. All of your pain was self-inflicted. You made choices. You made decisions. You put yourself out there. But everything that was done to me is not something I asked for, not something I wanted to be party to. I mean, I know you know you hurt me, but I don't think you really get the magnitude because it always switches back to you. But the point of the whole story is... Before you but, can you just tell her what you just heard so that we know that it reached you? That I'm not um, compassionate to your, your trauma and I talk more about my own trauma than your trauma. Is that... Mm-hmm. Pretty well sum it up. Talking about it, it just brings us both to such a bad place. And all it does is bring out anger and hate from you. Every time I try to talk about this with so, you. So let me try to help you do this in a way that is more healing and less activating. Because you're in a certain phase. You've gone from the 59 years of trying to deny everything, numb myself, feel nothing, medicate. And now I'm in touch. I'm in touch with myself. I'm figuring it out. I'm putting the pieces together. And it's making sense for the first time. There is no mask in front of me. And I am so deep into myself. I'm so freaking self-absorbed. It's still more about me. It was about me then, and it is about me now. And now you got to step out of yourself for a moment. If you attend to her primary concern, then she can attend to your primary trajectory. But she can only do that if she, there is space inside of her. And that space is, is, is created because you are saying to her, how are you doing? From a place of responsibility, not from a place of shame. I take responsibility. Yeah. Be very clear. I, I take 100%. Good. There is no excuse. There are a couple of but reasons. The problem is that if you go to her and you say to her, I can't believe how I treated you, you have to be able to not say, I feel so bad about me for having done this. It's the difference between I feel so bad about myself versus I feel bad for you. That makes a lot of sense. And what she needs is for you to finally step out of yourself and actually be able to say, I feel so bad for you. I didn't do it to you. I didn't cause you all of this pain in your life. But you caused me all this pain in my life. You, you have to find a way to help me through it. I came to you last night. I hug you. And you, and, and you have to let me say that. But people, you're going to help each other. Help each other. You're going to learn that together. So when you get all upset that he has to, he has to, he doesn't know. He doesn't disagree, yeah. but he doesn't know. So you tell him what you want. Don't tell him what he has to or what he does wrong. It's that all the time. Tell me what you want. I'm there. I am all in. I am 100% all in. I believe you. I am self-absorbed. I got to get out of that. It's putting her before 
my own self and needs. And it's important it's for me. It's beautiful. But your wife is more isolated than you. Okay. And she needs not an apology. She needs an acknowledgement of her experience. Yep. It's just that. You can use the words you want. You can use your body. Let it out. I love you. I know. I can't imagine what you're going through. <laughs> but I'm here for you. And it's good. Do you understand the difference? Yes, I do. So at that point, it seems like he's got it. You know, nobody ever apologized to him. He has no experience of someone saying, I'm so sorry I hurt you. So it's not something that he knows to do and that he just sobbed. Um, and then for her too, because until now, see, when she would ask for this, she would also do it with so much venom and so much anger that it was very difficult for him to come close. It's like she would say, you know, feel for me, but with such aggression sometimes, sometimes. Not that and to be fair, like understandably, yes, she's so hurt and course. she's so upset. Yeah. It's a given. It's a given that she must have rage inside of her. But it's also a given that when she approaches him with that kind of rage, she won't get the kind of care and compassion that she wants. So how do I soften her so that he can soften? Because if she goes at him, then he will stay stiff. And if he stays stiff, then she will remain more angry. And then you are in the same loop. Yeah. yeah. So I give words to what I know she's asking. But because I'm not experienced, I'm, I don't have her history, I can do it without the edge. And when I can do it without the edge, then he can come forward. And then they can have this new experience with yes. each other, which they haven't been having. That's the enactment that I'm talking about. I think she actually holds him at that moment. So you go through this with the two of them, and they have this moment. And, um, and he truly seems to understand. And then the next thing that happens is uh, the wife starts talking about her experience, and she says, you know, the reason why she's able to continue staying with him is that she believes that the sex was casual and that he didn't love anyone else. And then she talks about how she still questions, well, did he love her if he could do all that? I question, how could you have really loved me if you did that to me? You know? And then she says this. You know, when we calculate in, in my head exactly how many years it was, 22 years. 20, 22 years. We're married 36, you take away the two, you take away the 12. You cheated on me for 22 years. It's mind-boggling. I didn't cheat on her for 12 years. It's just mind-boggling. Your wife has just said so many important things, and the only thing you respond to is the calculus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we go through this all the time as the calculus. You know, you, you have to respond differently than what you just did. It's like he's lost the lesson 
and and he's talking about himself. He's defending himself. He's not talking about what she's feeling. Well, I'm going to show it to him again. It, this has to be repeated. But I actually have a different uh, experience of him. She just said 22 years. And he receives this like, what a piece of shit I am. And it's so unbearable. And so then he brings out the 12 years to say, I'm not that bad. That's the calculus. So now I'm going to help him stay with her. You know, you, you have to respond differently than what you just did. You can do better. Yeah. Yeah. It was a horrible, it's a horrible thing that, that you had to go through that. I, I, you're, you're my family. And, and it's crazy as it sounds. How can I do this to my family? I, and, and then I, he kind of stumbles again. He tries to reassure his wife that there is no way he's ever going to cheat on her again. And then he starts talking about the lessons that he has learned and how certain it is that he's changed. In other words, he's talking about himself. And Perel steps in again. And I'm trying to tell you. You know what may be more helpful? Don't try to convince her. Okay. Because you can't be that certain either. And most of the time, talk less and touch more. Talk less. You over-talk. <laughs> so when she gets upset, half the time, all you need to do is hold her and just say, I'm here. And for the rest, if you allow me, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Good advice. It's interesting. There's this idea that when you talk through your problems with your partner, it will alleviate loneliness. But here they are talking, and it's just doing the opposite. Yes, you can build walls with words and insurmountable barriers. Hearing your podcast, it, like, it, it seems so hard for people to come together. Like, like I was wondering if in your line of work, if it makes you feel hopeful for most couples and hopeful for the idea of people um, finding what they want with their partners. You know, the thing that just popped in my head is I have days where I have faith in humanity and days when I don't. Um, I'll answer you from a different angle. I once wanted to write an article on couples that inspire. And I asked about 60, 70 people at the time if they knew of couples that inspire them. And the vast majority could sometimes come up with one. Wow. I never wrote the piece, but it is the answer to your question, right? Is that we can seek some couples who are very good at this and some couples who are very good at that, but we don't have that many models where we just say, wow, this is who I want to be, how I want to be. Esther Perel, her new podcast, the Audible original series, Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel? can be found at audible.com slash Esther. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. Act three, Rosie's Paradox. So we end our show today with the story of one more person asking some very big questions. 
Stephanie Fu explains. About three years ago, my friend Matt's older daughter went through one of those hardcore phases where she got really into asking her dad a lot of questions. She was nine. There's the why phase. Um, and then the why phase can turn into the why not and explain and that endless string of questions. And uh, like, why can't I have my own room? How do I get to school? You know, why can't we have a yard? Can I have a cookie? They're unrelenting. So one night, Matt was working from home and Rosie was bugging him with her questions. And, and you know, it was just sort of one after the other after the other. And I was like, all right, look, you know, you, know, you got to just, just give me a minute. I'm working right now. Just go off and write them all down, right? Like, make me a list of the questions that you want me to answer, and I'll answer them for you. I thought it was going to be, like, three or four questions and then, like, a, you know, like a picture of a rabbit or something. And, you know, I get this list, and I look at it, and, you know, these are, like, the essential unanswerable questions of life. Read a few of these questions for me. We start at the very top. Okay, so... What is life? Why? That's the first question. That's the first question. It's the first thing she wants to know. <laughs> um, where do we go when we die? Heaven. Explain. Another planet. Is heaven another planet? Uh, why is there heaven or hell? Time. Why? Explain. <laughs> do we make worlds? Do we become like God? Why? Why do you do what you do? How do you know what's true? Who do you miss? Why? Explain. Do you miss anyone more than them? And does that change? And how? And if that changes, was it worth missing them in the first place? Uh, and, you know, my favorite is, and this is pretty much just, like, you know, my jaw dropped. Why any of this? I mean, my first reaction to them is, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm proud of her. Uh, and then I realize I actually have to answer these questions, right? There are about three pages, single-spaced, of handwritten questions. About 50 questions total. But a promise was a promise, so Matt got to work. He's a professor at West Point, teaches writing. And so he took a professorial approach to it and started researching answers for her, looking up quotes on each topic, spending weeks, sometimes months, writing each answer. Like, what's the shortest and what's the longest you've ever spent? And what's the hardest one? So I think the longest one is one that I haven't finished answering for her yet, which is, what is love? What's been the easiest one to answer so far? Is, is heaven another planet? No. I got him to read me one of the answers he worked hardest on. The answer to time. Why? Explain. Could you read it for me? Sure. Um... So tell me what and tell me why, and the burden is on me to justify this to you. Perhaps that's what time means in the end, is justification or a lack of being justified. And I don't really know what justification means. There was an old movie I saw when I was a kid in your grandmother's house. With the he big quotes Camus, the then brings in the Millennium the Falcon, grass, then St. Augustine, buzz, then Kierkegaard. Until it got dark and Rosie was nine. All his answers are like this. Kierkegaard gets to this point after either oaring everything. He says, why did I not die as a baby? I'm a grown-up, and I find it impossible to follow your answers. Like, I have, I honestly, I have not any idea what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really don't understand half of what I just said either, right? <laughs> to be honest. 
What his answers do have going for them is sincerity. The time one ends like this. In one of my favorite stories by a guy named William Faulkner, there's a daddy who gives his kid a watch and says, I give you this watch, not that you might remember time, but so that you might forget it for a little while. I can only tell you that time is me turning and turning <laughs> while the world is turning around a star that turns around a center that turns around the whole time among all the other things and little turning animals on all the little turning worlds. There's me trying to turn to you. Okay. And you just told her this answer like this? Yeah. And she... I mean, she would kind of pass in and out of, of being interested in it. Um, you know, and at the end of it, she's just kind of like, oh, yeah. Okay. And I'm like, all right, well, I mean, do you see what I'm saying about time is, you know, like it's a measurement of change, it's an arbitrary human construct, but not, but it feels different, right? So there's phenomena. She's like, yeah, yeah, okay. I was like, oh, well, this isn't really exactly what I wanted. That's not what you wanted because you were like, oh, this is kind of boring? Yeah. Rosie has a pixie cut and a cheeky grin. She gave her dad the 50 questions three years ago. She's 12 now. He's been working on getting her answers, but he's only gone through two-thirds of them because it takes him so long to cobble together a response. What I found out talking to Rosie is she didn't even really care about the answers to these questions. The questions that I thought that would take him a long time to answer... Because at the time, I really just wanted to talk to him. It all started when she first moved to New York City. Before then, she'd been living with her mom and grandparents most of the week. But then her grandpa, who she was really close to, died, and she had to move in with her dad during the week instead. At the same time, she started at a new school where the kids either ignored or bullied her, and she felt lost. One day, she came home from school and decided she needed to do something about it. I was lonely, and I felt a little sad that nobody had really stepped out to say, oh, hey, it's going to be okay. I'll be your friend. So that's when I really, really need somebody to talk to. So you didn't have anybody to talk to at school? Uh, no. And then at home? No. That's really why I felt like, oh, this is my dad. He's a really important person. I love him very much. I really want to become closer with him. Like, I wish there was something that I could do to make us closer. Did you feel like your dad wasn't paying enough attention to you? Yeah, a little bit. Or, not a little bit, yeah. <laughs> what was he doing instead? Um, he, was, he was writing papers on his computer, and I knew at the time how important it was. But part of me still wished that... I put down all the screens, put down everything else, and just talk. So I wrote all the questions down, and they were big questions because I know my dad, and if it's a little question, he'll elaborate on it and he'll make it a big deal. So if you times that by a big complex question, that would be a huge... Um, talk. Is it true that you weren't talking to her much at the time? No, I think I was talking to her all the time. Um, you know, I would tell her it was time to get up and go to school. I would tell her uh, that it was time to do her homework. I would tell her that she needed a new jacket. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk to you all the time. Maybe you're noticing the purely logistical nature of everything he mentioned. It certainly didn't get past Rosie. I talk to you all the time. Yeah, right? but it 
to me, it's not really the same thing. Um, so conversation and talking are completely different things. Talking could be arranged from, oh, hey, what's up? And conversation is you're deep in thought and you're looking and you're making eye contact and you're really enjoying the presence of somebody else. Rosie's a smart kid, yeah, but this is the thing I really admire about her. Matt was a single dad with two kids, going to school and trying to make the rent at the same time. Telling him to pay attention to her didn't cut it. So she figured out something else. I read this short story recently about a successful con man whose motto was, make them want to give you the thing you want to take. Rosie made her dad want to give her attention by making an opportunity to do what he loved, ponder over life's big questions. My dad was kind of hard-shelled, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so it took, like, a lot. I had to keep asking these questions and keep wondering. For me, it was just I had to keep going and keep trying and keep being this little bird that goes on your shoulder and is like, I'm now your friend. Do you feel like it sort of taught him how to talk to you better? Yeah, definitely. Over the past three years, mm-hmm. we've really like worked on having actual conversations than him just answering questions for me, because we practice it. Rosie never knew that her dad spent months and months writing down each answer. Matt only told her when I started working on this story, and she said she felt like, what? Are you kidding me? I had no idea that he was doing all these things, and it was just a big surprise for me. If I could, I would definitely just say, forget the questions, I just want to talk. So you're like, well, you don't even have to go through all that trouble. Yeah. Just hang out. Yeah. Rosie said this to her dad when she found out, and it really threw him for a loop. Yeah, it's a complete waste of time. (laughs) Um, I mean... What a complete waste of time to come up with these big, extensive projects that they are definitely less important to them than just just listening to them. Um, hmm. um, you know, what is time? Why explain? Well, I can tell you what I don't want time to be. I don't want time to be uh, something where I am just figuring out that I need to shut up and make some time to listen to this little kid uh, before it's too late. Rosie really started asking the questions because she wanted to know that she wasn't alone and that everything was going to be okay. Now, she enjoys hearing the answers because they remind her that that's true. That's why one of her favorite answers is the ending of Time, Why Explain? The part about all of the planets turning around themselves and in the middle of it, Matt turning towards Rosie. One of the main meanings of that is even though everything is happening around you, he, he just wants to know about me a little more, I guess. And a thing that I really like about that is because he just uses these sentences that make me kind of happy when I read them. You know, it's kind of funny when he read this to me, he sort of choked up a little bit. Yeah. He likes to be kind of um, a one-expression person, but when he <laughs> reads stuff like this... He gets all, like, emotional. Like, in the car right here, he was like, oh, I love you so much. And he was, like, tearing up and looking out the window. So <laughs> you, were, you looked so happy about that. <laughs> yeah. 
It's pretty great. <laughs> So people have been asking these big, important questions like, why are we here? What is life for forever? And do you think that the real like, big reason why we ask it is to have a reason to talk to each other? Um, no, I think that philosophers actually really do wonder about these things. And they, they don't use it so that they could talk to their dads more. They use it because they really wonder about these things and they want to know everything about it. But for my personal use, yes, that was exactly it. Matt does still want to keep answering Rosie's questions for her. But as for the hardest question, what is love? I don't think Rosie needs her dad to explain that to her anymore. She gets it. Stephanie Boo is one of the producers of our program. Oh, it's the never-realized question. What is it that we are part of? And what is it that we are? Our program was produced today by Robin Semyon. Our staff includes Elise Bergerson, Susan Burton, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Whitney Dangerfield, Karen Duffin, Stephanie Fu, Kimberly Henderson, Han Joffrey Wald, David Kestenbaum, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Manhivar, Alyssa Ship, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Nancy Updike, Julie Whitaker, and Diane Wu. Our senior producer is Brian Reed. Special thanks today to Jesse Baker, Sean Carroll, Seth Shostak, Ted Chang, Thomas Kale, and Priscilla Lopez. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. You can help SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, sort through its data looking for extraterrestrials with your own computer, with software that runs in the background on your computer. To get that software, just Google SETI at home. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. Back when we first started the radio show, he told me I could have full editorial control. He would never tell me what to say. You can use the words you want. You can use your body. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. What is it that we are part of? And what is it that we are?